Brace yourself, it's about to get ugly. A political hurricane poised to hit the nation's capital. It's a Category 5 superstorm guaranteed to cause record gusts from the usual windbags that inhabit Capitol Hill. The cause of the typhoon is the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, leaving a void and a vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court. President Trump will nominate a replacement as the presidential election looms. It already has Democrats and their media cheerleaders convulsing with outrage. It'll get worse as they blow nonstop garbage to derail the confirmation. So, how does the president avoid total destruction? Stay tuned. Attorney, Fox News legal analyst, and two-time New York Times bestselling author... This is The Brief with Greg Jarrett. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. The passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg can be felt deeply across America. She was a towering legal figure, first as an intrepid lawyer and then as an influential jurist on the nation's highest court. Even if you disagreed with the decision she rendered, her family, friends, and colleagues deserve our sincere condolences and our thanks for her life of dedicated public service. But the timing of her death during an election year so close to November 3rd, roughly six weeks away, will precipitate a megastorm of grotesque rhetoric and angry denunciations as President Trump moves to fill the vacancy with a conservative. In fact, the invectives have already started flying, and Trump hasn't even named a replacement yet. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell vowed to bring about a vote on the Senate floor, and Democrats and their media sycophants were instantly apoplectic with phony rage. MSNBC's leading liberal suck-up, Rachel Maddow, ginned up the hysteria on the very night that Ginsburg's death was announced by talking with, of all people, Hillary Clinton, who still thinks the presidency was her birthright, but stolen from her by that demon Trump. The Democrats who are in the Senate will have to use every single possible maneuver that is available to them to make it clear that they are not going to permit uh, uh, Mitch McConnell to enact the greatest travesty, the monument to hypocrisy that would arise from him attempting to fill this position. Every possible um, procedural uh, you know, obstacle has to be uh, thrown in the way of uh, this power drive by McConnell. There are things that can be done. They need to be done literally 24-7. But let's go down fighting and let's, you know, not give an inch uh, in the face of the kind of uh, uh, hypocrisy that, uh, you know, met President Obama when he tried to fulfill his constitutional obligation and appoint uh, Merrick Garland. Right, Hill. Travesty and hypocrisy. Why is it that hypocrites are always the first to accuse others of hypocrisy? Ever notice that? 
Four years ago, Hillary Clinton argued it's perfectly okay in an election year for a Supreme Court justice to be nominated by Barack Obama and confirmed by the Senate. Now, when the shoe is on the other foot, she claims it's not okay. She calls it the greatest travesty if Donald Trump does it instead of Barack Obama. Hillary defines the word hypocrisy. She's made a career out of it. Whether the nominee might actually turn out to be highly qualified, that's of no consequence to Clinton, Democrats, and the mainstream media. They don't care. They hate Trump. Without thought, they reflexively oppose anything he does. If we've learned nothing else in the last four years, we've learned that this president's adversaries are so rabid, they will do and say anything to stop him. So this will be a titanic clash on Capitol Hill, a pitched battle destined to become the leading issue between now and November 3rd. It could actually decide the election. How can President Trump navigate around the minefields laid before him over the next few weeks? There are three keys to it. First, he must educate the public that he has every right to fill the vacancy, the election notwithstanding. Second, he must pick someone who is impervious to the kind of vicious personal attacks that nearly derailed Brett Kavanaugh. And third, he has to convince several moderate Republican senators not to go rogue as they are wont to do. If Democrats and Joe Biden aren't careful, if they become too caustic, too strident in their opposition, they'll alienate independent voters sitting on the fence. And women who currently favor Biden if they unfairly attack a female nominee. Trump's pick is sure to energize his base and probably others. It's less clear whether obstructionist tactics will motivate a similar level of support for Joe Biden. It's trickier and more perilous. So let's examine the three objectives that Trump must accomplish to get his nominee over the finish line. The first one, educating the public about Trump's constitutional right to make a vacancy appointment in an election year. History favors Donald Trump, and there is ample precedent. There is absolutely nothing in the Constitution, not a single word, that prohibits a sitting president from nominating someone just before an election or even after an election that he loses. Our second president, John Adams, did it. In 1800, he lost his bid for re-election to Thomas Jefferson, but before Jefferson was sworn in, Adams nominated John Marshall as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He was confirmed by the Senate. He became the longest-serving Chief Justice in American history, 34 years, widely regarded as the most influential. Benjamin Harrison did the same thing. He filled a vacancy after he lost re-election, but before his successor took office. His nominee was confirmed by the Senate as well. Why did Harrison do it? Well, quite simple. He was following the precedent of four previous presidents who made so-called lame duck nominations to the Supreme Court. Hayes, Tyler, Van Buren, and Jackson. But it's not just ancient history. 
1980, Jimmy Carter lost his re-election bid to Ronald Reagan after the election, but before Reagan took office, Carter nominated Stephen Breyer to the First Circuit Court of Appeals. He had every right to do so. Carter was still president. Breyer was then confirmed by the Senate. Later, Breyer was elevated to the Supreme Court where he still sits. Now, sure, the First Circuit is a different federal court, one below the highest, but the constitutional principle is the same. Carter was constitutionally authorized to do what he did, and so was the Senate. What's truly amazing is that Democrats and the media seem utterly oblivious to the historical fact that on 29 separate occasions, U.S. presidents have nominated Supreme Court justices during election years, just like Donald Trump, 29 times. By the way, who started that precedent? None other than George Washington. So there is nothing that prevents Donald Trump from doing the same thing. He's constitutionally empowered to nominate someone now, regardless of the date of the next election. Now, naturally, you're not going to hear that from Democrats and liberal pundits on television. They won't admit it, mostly because they don't really know it or understand it. The sum total of their knowledge of history and the U.S. Constitution is meager. What you will hear them say every hour of every day until November 3rd, I guarantee it, is that Barack Obama nominated someone in an election year, but the Senate chose not to consider it. They will howl in unison until their vocal cords collapse that Donald Trump should not be permitted to accomplish what Barack Obama could not. To them, I would reply that the Merrick Garland case is not the standard or the established precedent. No, precedent is developed through the broad landscape of history, not a singular moment in time. At its core, the Garland case was an aberration born of a political failure. The failure was Barack Obama's and the Democrats. When Obama was first elected, Democrats increased their control of the U.S. Senate, but they failed to hold it. In 2014, Republicans won control of the U.S. Senate at the ballot box. Absent that political failure, Obama's nominee in 2016 would have been considered by the Senate and probably confirmed. What these howling Democrats and their media partners don't comprehend is that elections have consequences. If you lose control of the Senate in an election, you lose the right to dictate the rules. It's that fundamental, that simple, which means it's well beyond the grasp of most politicians and journalists. For example, CNN's legal analyst Jeff Tubin announced on air that confirming a nominee now would be, quote, the greatest act of hypocrisy in American political history. Oh, please. Tubin always says stuff like that. Everything is the greatest or the worst ever. He lives in a world of extremes. Jeff, why not just tell your viewers the truth? Just about everybody in Washington is a hypocrite. That's nothing new. That's not remarkable. It's endemic in politics. Dispense with the pretense, Jeff. Explain that the president and the Senate hold the power, and under the Constitution, they can do what they're doing. 
candor would be a refreshing change. But that won't happen. And in a way, Mitch McConnell bears a share of the blame. When he kicked Garland's nomination to the curb four years ago, he offered up a dubious excuse. He said the nomination rules are different if the U.S. Senate is controlled by a different party than the presidency. So where in the world did he get that? Well, from then-Senator Joe Biden when he was chairman of the Judiciary Committee back in 1992, an election year. In a floor speech that year, on June 25th, Biden warned the first President Bush not to nominate anybody to the Supreme Court in the event of a vacancy because of the upcoming election and because Democrats controlled the Senate. So the trouble with McConnell's rationale, and for that matter, Joe Biden's, is that it's an artificial construct. They conjured it up out of thin air, and they were motivated by political bias. And because of that, it's subject to intense criticism. Why not just tell the truth? Be honest. Whichever party controls the U.S. Senate with a majority sets the rules of procedure again. It's back to the Constitution. The president nominates, the Senate confirms. If the majority doesn't want to consider a nominee, it's free to do so. They can do what they want. That is how the framers constructed it. It's the democratic process. Voters elect senators. Those senators make decisions on nominees. Once again, elections have consequences, period. That is the unvarnished truth. But politicians are deathly allergic to the truth. To his credit, former Governor Chris Christie, who's known for his bluntness, tried to explain all of this to ABC's George Stephanopoulos on his recent Sunday program. So the fact is, it's who's got the votes, who the American people have put in charge of the Senate. And that's why Merrick Garland didn't move forward. The chronically obtuse Stephanopoulos didn't get it, of course. Instead, the former aide to President Bill Clinton thought he had a brilliant new idea to stop the pending nomination. Let's impeach Donald Trump all over again. Seriously, he said that. I fell out of my chair. Well, almost. Good old Stephanopoulos first tried out his dazzling idea on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Some have mentioned the possibility if they try to push through a nominee in a lame duck session that, that you and this, the House could move to impeach President, President Trump or Attorney General Barr as a way of stalling and preventing the Senate from acting on this nomination. Pelosi, who despises Trump with a passion, actually seemed stunned. So she dodged answering the preposterous question, saying, well, we have arrows in our quiver, whatever that means. So Stephanopoulos tried again. She dodged it again with something even more unintelligible. Quote, good morning, Sunday morning. Wait, what, what was that? Was that an answer? Maybe Pelosi was so confused she was thinking to herself, what's this guy smoking? Maybe he's been hanging out with Adam Schiff, who thinks everything Donald Trump does is grounds for impeachment. Who knows what Pelosi was trying to say or what she was thinking long ago? I gave up trying to figure that one out. But George, who was once banned from ABC's political coverage because of his bias, wouldn't give up the ghost. He brought up impeachment yet again. The third time with a different guest, Rahm Emanuel, Obama's old chief of staff. And like Pelosi, 
Emmanuel ignored the stupid question. Unbelievably, Stephanopoulos persisted, asking the question for now a fourth time. This time, Emmanuel slapped him down with a quick uppercut. But the idea of talking about impeachment is somehow retribution. That is what is corrosive to our political system, that somehow we have to one-up them. So Stephanopoulos clearly wants Trump impeached all over again. For what? Well, he didn't say in his persistent questions. He seemed to be suggesting that Democrats simply invent a pretext. Anything will do. Maybe impeach Trump for wearing a mask or failing to fasten his seatbelt. How about the time Trump gave himself a mulligan on the first tee? Am I being silly? Yeah, I am, because Stephanopoulos is a silly person. And he proved it on the air, as he tends to do every Sunday on ABC. And he actually admitted in his questions that his grand impeachment idea was completely phony. He said, why not do it as a way to stall the nomination? In other words, Let's abuse the impeachment clause in the U.S. Constitution for a purely political reason. It's astonishing that ABC continues to employ this guy. He never ceases to amaze. But there's a lot of that in the media. Reporters wear their partisanship on their sleeves these days. For example, on Face the Nation on CBS, the host Margaret Brennan focused over and over again on the report that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dying wish expressed to her granddaughter was that she not be replaced until a new president is installed. New meaning different. Okay, if it's true, that's newsworthy. I get it. But the way it was presented was to suggest that her wish should resolve the matter. As if the Constitution states that a dying or retiring justice gets to pick who chooses his or her successor. It doesn't say that, of course, but it's worse than that. All the journalists who keep reporting the dying wish story never put it in context. They won't tell you that four years ago during the Garland controversy, Ginsburg argued the exact opposite. She told a Georgetown University audience that Antonin Scalia's empty seat on the Supreme Court should be filled in an election year and before the new president is installed. At the time, Ginsburg's reasoning was perfectly sound. It was constitutional. She explained it, quote, the president serves four years, not three. So the power he has in year three continues into year four. And then she added, maybe members of the Senate will wake up and appreciate that's how it should be. So why doesn't the media tell you any of that, that Ginsburg took a position that now contradicts her dying wish? Well, it's simple. The media doesn't want you to know that. Because of their own liberal bias, they want to conceal it from you. They want you to think that the deceased should magically have some say in dictating her own replacement. So reporters are peddling it that way. It's dishonest. Justices don't own their seats on the Supreme Court. If they did, well, maybe they could sell them for profit. No, the incredible privilege of a seat on the nation's highest court is really a loan in public trust. It's finite, just as our own lives are. But that's all. Now, since I've taken shots at ABC and CBS, 
I'd really feel bad if I left out NBC and its Sunday host Chuck Todd of Meet the Press. Unlike others who try to hide their bias, Todd is conspicuous. I'll give him some credit for not pretending to be fair or neutral. So you know what you're getting when you tune in, and I always watch because well, I like to start my Sundays with a good laugh, and Chuck Todd never disappoints. This Sunday, two days after Justice Ginsburg's death, he obsessed over the whole hypocrisy mantra as if it was new or novel. He was outraged that anybody in Washington could be hypocritical when it comes to a Supreme Court nominee. It actually became pretty comical. On cue, I laughed. I really miss the legendary Tim Russert. He was tough but fair and smart. Chuck Todd is a cheap knockoff. One of Todd's guests, Senator John Barrasso, a Republican, kept trying to educate the host on how the Constitution works and how representative democracy actually functions. But Todd seemed determined not to listen or understand. He repeatedly branded Republicans as hypocrites. It was nonstop, like a, a smoke alarm you just couldn't turn off. And I kept thinking, why doesn't Chuck Todd pose the argument in reverse? Isn't it true that Democrats are also guilty of hypocrisy? Four years ago, they claimed it doesn't matter if a nomination is made in an election year. But now they claim it does matter. Isn't that hypocrisy? Wouldn't that be a fair and equal point that Todd could have made? Of course it would, which means it would never be asked. When Chuck Todd interviewed Hillary Clinton on Sunday, he fawned all over her, setting her up to say this. Our institutions are being basically undermined by the lust uh, for power, power for personal gain in the case of the uh, president or power for institutional mm -hmm. uh, gain in the case of Mitch McConnell. I laughed all over again. Not a Clinton cackle, mind you, just a good hearty chuckle. It's pretty rich whenever Hillary Clinton accuses others of a lust for power. She has no sense of self-awareness. Like Stephanopoulos, who promoted impeaching Donald Trump, Todd all but invited Democrats to pack or stack the Supreme Court by expanding the number of justices as an act of political retribution. He didn't bother to mention that the late Justice Ginsburg was on record saying just last year that that is a lousy idea that would only serve to politicize the court further. But Todd never mentioned that inconvenient fact. His guest had to help him out. So now you get the picture. Given the pervasive and shameful media hostility toward Donald Trump and Republicans, it'll be a challenge for them to educate the public that the president is perfectly entitled under the Constitution to nominate Ginsburg's replacement and for the U.S. Senate to confirm. That's the first key, marshalling public opinion. The second key, as I mentioned at the outset, is for President Trump to select someone who is impervious to the kind of vicious personal attacks that nearly derailed Brett Kavanaugh. It helps immensely that Trump is committed to picking a woman to replace a woman on the high court. It will be a woman, a very talented, very brilliant woman.
I think it's safe to assume that Kavanaugh-like accusations of sexual assault against a female nominee just won't fly. Thankfully, there are several highly qualified women on President Trump's shortlist. The confirmation process can move more quickly because they've all been vetted already for previous confirmations to the federal bench. Trump is seriously considering 48-year-old Amy Coney Barrett of Indiana, an excellent choice, who serves on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Her scholarship as a professor of constitutional law at Notre Dame is impressive. Her judicial decisions are solid and conservative. Barrett clerked for the late Antonin Scalia, and like him, she's an originalist who interprets the Constitution as originally intended instead of legislating from the bench. Democrats wouldn't dare attack Barrett as they did Kavanaugh. Her personal story is remarkable. The oldest of seven children, Barrett and her husband have seven children of their own, including two adopted from Haiti and one with special needs. But Democrats will attack her, make no mistake, on everything from abortion to religion. To some extent, those are intertwined. They did it in 2017 during her confirmation hearing to the Seventh Circuit. Democrat Senators Dick Durbin and Dianne Feinstein repeatedly badgered Amy Barrett about her faith. She's a devout Catholic. But she responded forcefully and with poise, making it clear that her religion has nothing to do with her duties as a judge. As a footnote, there have been 13 Catholics who have served on the nation's highest court. The Durbin-Feinstein assault on Barrett's faith was not only inappropriate and wrong, it was unconstitutional. Article 6 of the Constitution states that religion is not a test for public office. Not that either of those two senators would ever know or even understand that. Maybe they don't care. But the point is this. Barrett is not susceptible to a Kavanaugh smear. There won't be the hit and run by sudden witnesses who emerge from the woodwork. But Amy Barrett, if she's chosen, will be vigorously attacked, as I say, in a different way. She'll be accused without evidence of having a secret agenda to overturn Roe versus Wade because in the past she's been critical of the legal reasoning behind that landmark abortion ruling, even though she has acknowledged publicly that it's settled law. So the hearing will be acrimonious, it'll probably get ugly, but nothing like the Kavanaugh debacle. If Democrats are not exceedingly careful, their tactics could backfire and alienate the very kind of voters Joe Biden desperately needs to win the presidency. The third and final key to confirmation is to convince several moderate Republican senators not to go rogue as they are wont to do. You know who they are, the usual suspects, Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Mitt Romney of Utah, the only Republican to vote in favor of impeaching Donald Trump. They're known infamously as the Three Amigos. I prefer the originals, Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, and Martin Short. Susan Collins has already said that the confirmation process can proceed, but a vote in the Senate should not be held until after the election. Collins is just making up her own standard because the Constitution is silent about that matter.
Murkowski says she's against even a hearing before the election. Mitt Romney? Well, he hasn't said. He's waiting to stick his finger in the air to test the political winds, as he always does. His only conviction is doing what's best for Mitt. Keep in mind, Republicans can lose all three of the Amigos and still get their nominee confirmed with the help of a tie-breaking vote by Vice President Mike Pence, who presides over the U.S. Senate. But any other defections might prove fatal. So in the end, it comes down to simple arithmetic. And it's too early to power up the calculator. A lot will happen in the days and weeks to come. So stay tuned. I'm Greg Jarrett. That's The Brief. Thanks for listening.